Hey everyone, and thanks for joining us again on the Climate Ready Podcast. This is Alex Maroner here, bringing you more of the latest perspectives and trends related to international climate change issues. Once again, I'm joined by my colleague, Aaron Gooch. Hello there to all our listeners. On this episode of the Climate Ready Podcast, we wanted to take a closer look at the arena of international climate policy. Next month, we'll see the 23rd Conference of Parties, or COP23, for the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. As is the case each year, for 12 days, our collective attention turns to these hugely important climate negotiations. This year, the COP will take place in Bonn, Germany, under the presidency of Fiji. In this episode, we are lucky to be joined by two very special guests, AGWA's coordinator, Dr. John Matthews, and the manager of international policies at Stockholm International Water Institute, as well as AGWA's co-chair, Maggie White. Let's take a listen to hear their perspectives on the state of climate policy, the role of water as a connector, a blue line in Bonn, and hopes for COP23. Stick around and you might even hear some quotes from Einstein and Voltaire. Stay tuned. Climate Ready podcast is made possible by funding from the World Bank Group. For more on the World Bank and its role in supporting climate adaptation efforts, visit www.worldbank.org. This is John Matthews with Climate Ready. Welcome Maggie White with uh, AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, and CWE, the Stockholm International Water Institute. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. Maggie, I'd, I'd like to talk with you at, uh, on my side as, as a technical specialist, someone that's been doing adaptation from a technical perspective for the last uh, 10 or 15 years, and, and with you as someone who, who comes from to me, an almost kind of a mystical background, the, the, the world of uh, uh, international and national policy uh, and, and focusing on climate issues. Uh, even though I, I, I do some work in that area, it seems very uh, mysterious and strange. Um, I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background in the area of working in policy issues and how you came to, uh, uh, to work on policy. But I started 20 years ago, actually, um, looking into local development in rural areas of uh, West Africa, working for an NGO. And what came out very strongly was that if we don't address um, adaptation issues, especially coming from water and really looking at human development, but integrating the whole resources and environmental dimension, um, we're not going to go very far, actually. We end up having very isolated projects and programs very often in rural areas, you find different development programs or agencies that don't talk to each other. I mean, one village in Kornaka in uh, Niger, for example, had the Japanese Development Agency, the French Development Agency, um, DFID, working but not communicating or talking to each other. So very isolated um, initiatives with the rural population not even being involved and in the end just saying, oh, it's the development's projects, so not actually thinking that the well that's being built is for them and it will be for them to manage it and take care of it, or the school as well. So what happens in that is that if there's a problem or an issue or something breaks down, the villagers are just going to wait for the project to come back and repair it. So that whole approach of ownership and actually embedding things within the local community 
training them, reinforcing their capacities is essential. And you can't reach that if you have external entities coming in, uh, not being coordinated. And that can only happen at the policy level, at the national level within a country. You can, you can have the World Bank promoting community-based development at the international level, but if that's not integrated in the national policies of a country, or if the, ba the bank doesn't recommend that highly in their discussions with the countries in taking out a loan, that is not going to trickle down and actually be implemented. So the, if you know what might seem mysterious to you on the policy level is actually where a lot of the um, technological approach, whether it's, you know, um, sociological, anthropological, um, engineering, um, all of those different techniques have to come and be embedded and welcomed at the policy level for them actually to be mainstream and implemented in a coherent way. So my initially, when I started out with local development and projects on the ground, what I realized is that if we want meaningful change, that can only happen if you bring that knowledge, that technology, that technique, that know-how to the national or the international level through policy. That, that's a great answer. How is it that you moved from uh, from that initial experience, that initial level of awareness into working on climate issues in particular? I think you actually mentioned that once, is that climate, when it first, when it first came out, was very scientific and very much about data, knowledge, uh, meteorological analysis. So, um, something very far, very complex, um, actually quite scary, you know, before going to that world, we feel like we're a bit overwhelmed. And when I, after the NGO I was working for in local development, I joined Eau um, de Paris, which is the water utility service for, for Paris. And it, it actually was going through its whole transformation of becoming a 100% public. So remunicipalization within the, the capital of Paris, a big mega city, was actually a big change in the um, in the water arena and history with uh, the whole stakes around public-private um, ownership or public-private service delivery here. And the whole question of, you know, what is the responsibility of a, of a megacity, of a local um, authority when it comes to water service and delivery. And what was interesting with Eau de Paris was that they were not just looking at the service, so delivering clean water or the whole question of unsanitation, they were actually looking at where the water was coming from. They were having a very integrated approach to where do we take the water, what are the impacts on it, whether it's pollution, droughts, um, and therefore starting to analyze it from a, from a climate perspective with the impacts that we're getting. And that's when I started thinking, well, actually, climate is not that far away from us. It's Yes, it's our environment, but when we want to handle climate issues, it actually, everything gets compensated in that because we're not only talking about the emissions that are coming out from our activities, but also how can we adapt, improve, and mitigate um, towards those um, those emissions or the negative reverse impacts of, of climate. So it actually became much more clear for me how water can play a strategic role by looking by coming in from the the water delivery and drinking water perspective, and then coming more into environmental approach, and actually afterwards seeing a delivery level when it comes to bringing water to agriculture, industry, um, you know, human needs, um, homes, uh, and therefore having to look at a holistic, integrated way. And that's when I felt that climate was actually a very interesting hat to put on all of that. That's very interesting. And what, what it sounds like you're describing is that uh, climate is a kind of comprehensive organizing principle that that you can use to uh, 
uh, organize and prioritize a whole range of other uh, activities. By extension, I'm assuming what you're saying is that policy uh, becomes really important um, uh, both uh, to incorporate uh, climate and as an instrument for, for using climate to, to further organize and rationalize and make coherent a wide range of a activities and processes. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. It's, um, I mean, we, we can see it now when we, we, we have these global international agendas, actually, between the, the Paris Agreement, the SDGs, um, the Sunday Framework. I mean, these are all global frameworks. They're giving indications that inspire us at the policy level very globally. And, and at the same time, I mean, from whatever perspective you, you take it from, yes, the SDG, now we're talking not only about the human development, but also protecting the environment and, and, and Mother Earth. But all of that actually comes out to whether this, this, this biomass that we're in, this Earth that we're in, it's, all, it's really climate has that encompassing element to it. And from there, you, you, you actually think about how do you bring those changes? How do we think differently? How do we adapt to this? How do we change our way of living, of consuming, of producing? And, we're, and that, those, those mechanisms come forward in the realization that our climate environment is changing, but also in what kind of policies can enable that um, without hindering um, our well-being also, and at the same time take into consideration the environment we're in. That's a, a beautiful vision that, that you're painting. Um, I, I'm recalling a conversation I had a lo long time ago um, before I, I became involved marginally in some policy work. And I was talking to uh, a lot of colleagues, most of whom were resource managers, or they, they worked uh, with, uh, directly with resource managers themselves. And it, this was in a, an environmental organization. I was the climate guy in the room, and, and I was supposed to lead a conversation with them uh, about, uh, about the role of, of uh, climate in, in their work. And what they really wanted to talk with me about was policy. And, and they said, uh, uh, we, we were worried about a policy about uh, some of the emerging global institutions like the UNFCCC, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, and, and some of these other uh, groups that you've just mentioned, um, because we're afraid of them. We, we think that they are, are making uh, bad judgments. They don't really understand resource management. They don't understand what our world looks like at, at this level. And, and the rumors, the indications that we have for the people who are making those policies is that they are really uh, disconnected. They're, they're a bullpen in a China shop and they're going to wreck everything. You have painted this uh, very beautiful picture, but I'd like to, to echo this. As a scientist, sometimes I, I've been in these rooms um, and I've looked around and there are a lot of policy specialists and I'm the only scientist there. And and that, that frightens me uh, because I know I'm not that good of a scientist. I come from a very specific point of view anyway. I would like to see more applied people or, or more scientifically credible people, more technical people in there that are helping to advise those policy processes. How do we make sure that, that uh, A, that policy is, uh, is good policy, that it actually supports and enables good work, and, and B, uh, uh, how do we potentially even d defend ourselves uh, against uh, policies that maybe are not uh, very effective now and, and may not uh, that at best they're incomplete and that they, they haven't 
evolved to become helpful yet? I think I think for that I have two words. One is the importance of dialogue, and the other one is being humble. Um, I think just like you might be a bit overwhelmed by people from policy, people from the policy sector are also very overwhelmed by the scientists or the people that have the know-how also, uh, because you're you're very specific and you see exactly what is happening. Um, and there's too often a gap between these two communities and they're not talking to each other enough uh, and not talking to each other in a true way. I mean, the thing is that we have no way of really knowing what is happening right now and what's going to happen in the next 10 years. Because everything is so interconnected and interrelated that the fact that we're over-consuming on one end could have diabolical, disastrous effects, but in ways we don't even know at the moment. So I think we have to be humble in the fact that what's important is the vision and what we're trying to reach, but we also need to recognize that we maybe don't know how, don't have all the knowledge. And what we know today might be completely different in the face of how... Um, you know, the level of, of risks that are happening from, from hurricanes or from or, or from sea level rise and all that. We don't know. And all this applied science or trying to um, actually modulate things and trying to, to see in the future, it's it's one way. But it's one way of, of analyzing it according to what we have today. That's an interesting point. I mean, you're, I think you're not just talking about being humble in our interactions between uh, technical or uh, on the ground people and uh, the policy sphere, you're also talking about, about ensuring that the policy itself is humble. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we have to be humble on both sides. And I think Einstein said that we cannot fix the errors of, of, of tomorrow with the same errors that created them or same vision. So, so it's, it's really about just thinking, you know, we don't have the solutions maybe right now, but we have to look and seek and work together to reach that instead of coming forward, being assured that we have the right answer. Um, so I think that that's, that's the first thing, is, is, is trying to be humble that we're not sure. The information we have is one kind of information, and it's relevant in a certain context, but that could change in, in, in a year's time or in 10 years' time. And therefore, that's why it's important to keep the dialogue going, saying, okay, this is what we have, but it could change. Or this is what we thought we were going to reach, but that's not what we reached. So how are we going to adjust to that? And we need to keep that path of discussion between the people collecting the information or testing the information and the people who are supposed to digest this in order to create um, national policies that then influence the implementation of programs also. Those are great points. Uh I, I'll meet your Einstein quote with a with a good since you're in Paris right now with a quote from Voltaire. Um, uh, it's a, it's a one that I ran across recently and it made, immediately made me think of some of the climate policies that I have encountered. That illusion is the first of all pleasures, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love that quote uh, because it uh, to me it says that actually there's there there is a lot of illusion in how we. Uh, develop climate policy. There's a, a there's an, an illusion of confidence and certainty that we know about what the future really is going to look like, and and that one of the the challenges that we have is is to see beyond that illusion to actually see that that uh, uh, that the, the the science tells us that things are happening, um, but it it can't be that specific. It can't tell us what's going to happen in a particular place. Um, uh, the full ramifications of those impacts and when 
they're they're going to happen either. It's a uh, almost a kind of a trap, I think, for policy makers to to develop over certain uh, policy. Yes, definitely. It always has to be a movement and and being willing to adjust and and adapt, which is not always easy because policies do take time to digest and then be be also validated. I mean, when we look at democratic processes, it always takes a very long time going through the parliament, laws being established. So there is that issue also between the emergency of the situation and the necessity to be flexible and to adapt or to transform uh, with the democratic process of of having time to validate things also. Um, but but it, but whenever I, I do go to a COP, for example, and I do listen to representatives of, of countries and decision makers, I always feel so good and rebuffed because there's a real awareness. I mean, except for some countries who want to be troublemakers, we're not going to mention them. But the ones who really have, the, the ones who are really impacted by climate change are so aware of it and and within that country they have such beautiful visions or desires of moving forward or trying things that it's 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 really quite interesting and not like i've been in the sector for about 20 years now and already in the past five years i've had to change where some of the developing countries don't position themselves anymore as victims they're positioning themselves as as agents of change that are looking for solutions um, by themselves within their country or within their region also. And it's always so inspiring to hear them. And those that succeed, and I think that's that's one thing where there's a, a difference between, sometimes difficulty between the scientists and the policymakers, is that in science and scientists, they want to be very precise and specific. And when I mean scientists, it can even be an economist, for example. But everything has to be justified, has to be proved. Everything has looked into, into the most minute detail. But in policy, what's interesting in climate is that you have to be intersectorial. You have to be integrated. You have to link up the different sectors. And that's where policy is interesting, where it can give that push of putting around the table people from the agriculture, from the energy, from health, from water environment, from biodiversity. And at that level, when you're trying to find solutions together, it has to be a desire, a wish for something to be improved and better. But you, when you're putting so many sectors together, it's very difficult to be very specific, to go to that level of detail that scientists are looking for. So it's that fine balance between the vision that you might have in, in policymaking and what you're trying to aim and the exactness of the information, the data, or, or, or the outputs that you might be able to reach when you're coming in from a scientific point of view. And I feel that's very often where it's quite difficult, actually, to bridge different sectors together, different initiatives, or to be able to establish those policies also. You know, I, uh, th- those are uh, really interesting points. Uh, the first COP, the UNFCCC COP that I attended uh, was Copenhagen, uh, COP 15. When was that, 2009, 2010? 2009, yeah. I remember uh, watching, they, they were restricting uh, near the end of the COP the number of people who could enter the building. And so I had to watch some of the discussions uh, in the plenary uh, as things kind of came down to the wire. It looked like uh, we were going to reach a point where we were going to go thumbs up with a good agreement or thumbs down with no agreement or or a weak agreement. And tensions were very high. And uh, the president of the Maldives stood up. The Maldives is a small island group uh, south of India. Uh, uh, you know, culturally, it has, has a lot in common with India and Sri Lanka, 
um, South Asia more generally. Um, but it's a very low-lying island group. Uh, there's there's very little of the, uh, the islands that is above five meters over sea level. This man, he'd been involved in climate uh, discussions for uh, a few years, and he was a very powerful communicator. I, I remember at one point he, um, as, as kind of a joke, he held a cabinet meeting, a ministerial meeting uh, in scuba gear underwater uh, to kind of make the point that his, his, his country was... <laughs> his country was uh, was uh, so threatened by sea level rise, but he was so worried in that moment. Uh, you know, I was I was in a crowded room. We were all watching this little screen, and and he uh, uh, he was making an intervention, and he he just started to cry because uh, he he could see that Copenhagen was slipping away as a meeting, um, that it was going to it was probably going to fail, uh, and he 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 was right. He he said, please please act. It, it was a it was a very powerful uh, and disturbing moment, um, and, and but that so I think that goes very well to this idea that that you really uh, policy is often I think uh, viewed from the outside as a kind of ab abstract or uh, kind of cold area, but it's really it's it's also a, a a place where we're negotiating and often we're doing so from a very passionate uh, place with competing interests and. Uh, where uh, we have uh, strong feelings. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake about climate change um, and, and how we do go to adaptation. I have uh, some questions uh, for you that are about what seems to be a kind of emerging landscape. I think cl climate change uh, has been viewed almost in kind of isolation as an isolated set of projects. I, I, within institutions, within countries, and a lot of practitioners, um, you know, they, they have felt disconnected from each other, from some kind of larger uh, image, some type of light motif that, that connects these different projects uh, together. But it feels like, from the outside, that the, the language that we use to even talk about sustainable development, that we, that we use to talk about how we do water projects or community projects, um, uh, or conservation projects that, that a climate is kind of seeping in uh, from the edges. And I hear it coming in from finance. I hear it coming in um, sometimes through the sustainable development goals. I'm not sure how that's being connected to, the, uh, to a global climate policy, um, but uh, there seems to be a kind of emerging connection there. Uh, I, and I, I hear it uh, in terms of NDCs. Um, uh, the, these nationally determined contributions. Can you talk about how uh, there there seems to be this kind of larger landscape uh, 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 that is, is starting to connect global policies with actual projects? Yeah, I mean, w w what's interesting, what happened at, I find, at COP21, actually, um, with the Paris Agreement is that climate issues was not just about mitigation and emissions, that, for me, was the big changing moment um, to the climate arena. And that is where we see more interconnection with the other global agendas or even the whole question of human development. And so that, that's a big step. And that's where the, this, this, this arena, this landscape is, is, is opening up to other sectors and actors and why people who didn't, do, who didn't say they were doing um, activities linked to climate are actually now realizing that they're impacting are contributing um, to climate issues. 
And what's interesting is that 2015 was just a, just an amazing year. I mean, I'm, I'm a policy geek, and I'm just so fascinated by we have these four great agendas that were voted and agreed upon, which are the SDGs, the Paris Agreement, the Disaster Risk Framework um, Design Sunday, and the Addis Abeba also um, Framework for um, Financing Development. So, and what's interesting is that if you look at the, the SDG agenda, when it comes to climate, there is an SDG on climate. And all they to do is actually relate and make reference to adaptation and mitigation and then just say to revert back to the Paris Agreement because the Paris Agreement was, was agreed upon after the SDGs. So there's practically nothing about climate in the SDG, even though we're talking about sustainable development. And how can you sustainably develop um, you know, your, the environment with the earth we're living on if you don't take into consideration nature, climate, and its I, impacts. I'm so glad to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, 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 I mean, I think that was a solution they found thinking, okay, the, the SDGs are being, you know, agreed upon at, you know, the UN General Assembly in September 2015, but the Paris Agreement is taking place in December 2015. How do we do this? So, and they weren't even sure that anything was going to come out of the Paris Agreement also. So it was really risky not to put too much, I mean, to put so, such little reference to climate in the SDGs. Thank God the Paris Agreement came forward, it was signed, and therefore, how do you do that link now? And what's interesting, I find, is that actually the UFCCC process is linking up with the SDG by saying that at each COP, they will address different SDGs in order to mainstream and highlight the link between the SDG agenda and the Paris Agreement. And that will be looked upon in detail at the COP. So COP coming up in Bonn, COP23, will address the issues when it comes to um, cities and human settlement and when it comes to um, sustainable agriculture, food security and nutrition. And for me, that's a very concrete way of moving forward and looking in detail at how each of the SDGs uh, can be addressed within the climate context and therefore having that comprehensive approach to it. Now, this is all very at a global level and giving a framework and exchanging and coming together. But what's interesting is that the SDG are very global and we have targets that we have to reach. The climate agreement, on the other hand, with the NDCs, so these are nationally determined contributions. These are countries saying what they're willing to do, um, what they can do in order to face the climate issues at the national levels and what kind of programs or issues they feel are important to address within that country. So you have a global framework, which are the SDGs and the targets, and then you have a national framework, which are these NDCs. And what's going to be very interesting is if in the NDCs, countries start looking at the SDGs and their targets and start seeing how do we implement that and how do we report on that within our NDCs? And how do our NDCs cover all these different issues, which are in the SDGs also? So for me, the, the, the SDGs is this global vision in which we have climate, but then the implementation of them comes through the Paris Agreement and the NDCs at the national level. And that's why it's so important to really look at how these two agendas can work together and what can bridge them, because we don't want to overload countries also in having in reporting mechanisms when it comes to donors or to international organizations. We have to find the way to facilitate and make it more efficient for countries to be able to get funding, implement projects that have the highest return on investment and on human development that they can have. That's a very encouraging and I think optimistic vision that you're describing. Yeah, I'm called naive sometimes too. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, but I, I mean, that, that is what we can do. I mean, we have the tools. That's what's, that's what's so fascinating right now is that we have these amazing, beautiful tools um, with, within these global agendas. And, and so there's really no excuse not to reach um, an improved world where we don't leave anybody behind. There's no excuse for that. We have the framework. Um, afterwards, then, of course, you have the nitty-gritty details, but, you know, there is, there is a realization of the importance of reaching these objectives. What will you be doing in the COP in Bonn, Germany, uh, this year? Agua is one of these um, um, networks that actually tries to bridge between the different sectors and communities, and, and it's been working a lot. I mean, I think Agua is one of the first networks that recognize the importance of water when it comes to um, to climate issues on the adaptation and mitigation level. So, Sea um, um, and Agua are co-coordinating the organization of the Water Action Day, and uh, and we'll be doing quite a few side events also just to try and bridge again that the water and the climate community. Um, and then also looking at the bigger picture um, again, which is also source to sea and the link between freshwater and oceans. I'm linking up a lot on the on the urban agenda also because we I mean, you know, water is not just about living, you know, clean drinking water to to the inhabitants of a, of a city or of a town. It's always it's also about the way you you balance the rural and urban area, the whole impact of industries and agriculture and polluting water, um, therefore polluting the biodiversity also. So um, working a lot on, on those elements to add the next COP and, and trying to find the, the right entry points to increase more dialogue with the climate community and, and the water community. We have to remember we are, I mean, this, this, this earth is round. It's a unit. It's interconnected. So we really have to have a global vision when we try to address the issues. Even if it's complicated, we have to respect Mother Earth enough because she has been able to develop in such an intricate interesting way, the way she has found her balance. And we are disturbing that balance, so we owe it to her to try and be as respectful and protective and forth-looking as possible. Well, I I wish you luck, and I will see you in Bonn. Uh, We'll touch base with you, hopefully, during that week. Get uh, your readout from uh, how how, uh, some of those events and processes have been going and uh, and your sense about uh, what, what you did or didn't do uh, while, while you were there. Th- thank you very much, Maggie. And, thank uh, you. Thank you, John. Yeah, take care. Hey, everyone. Thanks for sticking with us. We covered a ton of ground today. If you're like us and not the most well-versed in the climate policy world, I hope you took away some memorable lessons from the conversation. Here are a few messages that I'll leave you with. National and international policy is complicated, but it's the best approach to integrate our efforts in a way that's cohesive, effective, and inclusive. Policies are designed to minimize isolated initiatives and maximize stakeholder involvement and ownership. On this podcast, we often discuss technical approaches to climate adaptation. If we really want to embed and mainstream these approaches at a scale that makes a difference, we need effective climate policy. A gap does still exist between the scientific and policy communities, But we can work across this divide if we value open dialogue and a sense of humility. Both sides should keep in mind that we don't have all the solutions right now. We need to keep the discussion going between these communities. Lastly, 2015 was a milestone year for climate policy. The scope of climate dialogue expanded beyond just emissions and mitigation. More sectors and actors have been brought into the discussion. We now have global goals through the SDGs and a means of implementing these goals through the NDCs. As Maggie said, 
There's really no excuse not to reach an improved world where we don't leave anybody behind. With that, our eyes turn to Bonn and COP23. We'll have follow-up conversations based on the outcomes there in the future episodes of the Climate Ready Podcast. Until then, thanks again for listening. Do you want to learn more about a specific topic related to climate change adaptation? Is there a burning question that you'd like to have answered? We'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Send us your questions and we'll feature them in our upcoming guest interviews. Visit aguaguide.org slash climate ready. That's A-G-W-A guide.org slash climate ready to submit your questions, comments, or feedback. 